Scripture, I just want to say a thank you to our lay leader, Leslie Hall, for filling in this morning and assisting in leading worship, and our guest violinist, Angel Lawless. Thank you so much. What a blessing. We appreciate you being here with us. Amen. So if you've been here over the last couple of weeks, you know that we are wrapping up a three-week series of sermons that we've called Faith, Hope, and Love. And those come from a scripture that I'll read in just a minute. But a couple of weeks ago, we started with faith. And the understanding that faith is believing in something enough that you're willing to live into it. And then last week, Reverend Bagwell shared with us a message on hope. Particularly that hope is courage in the face of fear 
Because we know that God goes with us through it all. And so today we turn our attention to love. And what you find as you read the scriptures is not only is love a theme of the Bible, it may be the theme of the Bible. When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? His answer was love. Love God and love your neighbor. When Jesus was with his disciples in the upper room the night before he was arrested, he said to them, I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other. This is how they'll know that you're my people, is by how you love each other. You read on in the New Testament in the letter of 1 John. The Apostle John writes that God is love. And so with that in our minds and our hearts that in fact love may be the theme of the scriptures. I want to invite you to go with me now to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm going to read verses 4 through 13 about love. And this is what it says. Love is patient. Love is kind. It isn't jealous. It doesn't brag. It isn't arrogant. It isn't rude. It doesn't seek its own advantage. It isn't irritable. It doesn't keep a record of complaints. It isn't happy with injustice, but it is happy with the truth. Love puts up with all things, trusts in all things, hopes for all things, endures all things. Love never fails. As for prophecies, they will be brought to an end. As for tongues, they will stop. As for knowledge... It will be brought to an end. We know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, what is partial will be brought to an end. When I was a child, I used to speak like a child, reason like a child, think like a child. But now that I have become a man, I've put an end to childish things. Now we see a reflection in a mirror Then we will see face to face. Now I know partially, but then I will know completely in the same way that I have been completely known. Now, faith, hope, and love remain. These three things, and the greatest of these, is love. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, choir. That was a blessing. Maybe you recognize that scripture that we just read, particularly the first part of it. Love is patient, love is kind, so on and so forth. It's, it's a popular one at weddings. Um, If you've been to a wedding, maybe you've heard that read, or maybe you remember your wedding. It might have been the scripture that was read at your wedding. Uh, I know as a pastor, I get that request a lot. It's it's one of the hits (laughs) 
of wedding scriptures is 1 Corinthians 13. And it's great. I mean, it's, it's, it's a great scripture to read at weddings because it's a beautiful depiction of love and what love is and what love looks like, how we experience it, express it. Uh, so, fits well. However, I, I, I think one of the challenges for us is because that has sort of become the staple verse or verses for weddings is we've sort of made that passage about romantic love or love between spouses and um, sort of just pulled it into that narrative and put it within those bounds. And the fact is, this has nothing to do with marriage. <laughs> I mean, it, this is not why it was written. It was not written to be read or preached at weddings. Um, when Paul wrote this, he wasn't thinking about couples at all. And, and so we, we, we've kind of maybe unintentionally constrained this scripture to marriage and, and relationships of, you know, spouses or couples and, uh, and, I, and I think we've done it a bit of a disservice, and we miss some of the richness and depth and breadth of this picture of love. Now, admittedly, it's really hard to, to make a turn from that this week, especially because we just celebrated Valentine's Day this past week. If, uh, if that's you, you've got a Valentine in your life, I'm sure that you had some amazing, wonderful experience and celebration and oohed and awed over each other, and it was remarkable. Um, it's interesting, one of the things that I, I watch is um, just sort of for our culture, where we put our money, because that sort of tells you where your priorities are. And I was reading a report uh, before Valentine's Day from the National Retail Federation. They do this report every year uh, projecting what we will spend and what our spending habits will be around holidays, Valentine's in particular. And so the National Retail Federation projected that we would spend uh, collaboratively $20 billion on Valentine's Day this year. That's with a B, billion dollars. An all-time high, more than we've ever spent before. And really, in recent years, it just keeps climbing. Um, but one of the other things that they noted in their report about Valentine's Day was um, they take sort of each age bracket and, and, do, and ask some questions about celebrating Valentine's Day. And one of the questions is, do you plan to celebrate Valentine's Day? Do you plan to buy something or spend for Valentine's Day? And particularly the age bracket, 18 to 34, they, they pointed out in their study that 10 years ago, 72% of people in that bracket, 18 to 34, said they planned to celebrate Valentine's Day and spend money on Valentine's Day. This year, it was 52% said that they plan to celebrate Valentine's Day or buy something, spend money on Valentine's Day. However, per person, our spending just keeps going up. So 10 years ago, we were spending about $100 a person on Valentine's Day, on average, uh, all of us. And this year, it's $160 per person that we were planning to spend or they were projecting that people would spend based on the survey responses on Valentine's Day, which is how you get to that $20 billion number <laughs> collectively. Now, I hold that information juxtaposed to something I heard a couple of years ago in a podcast. I listened to an NPR podcast called Hidden Brain. 
I don't know if you, any of you listen to that. It's really interesting. And um, if you don't know what podcasts are, ask somebody next to you. Uh, they could probably help you with that. But, um, but this podcast, Hidden Brain, they were, they were doing a, you know, an episode on a study that had been done by sociologists and economists here at Emory University in Atlanta. And the study they were doing was about the longevity of marriages and how much money was spent on the wedding. And so they did a, they did a survey and interviewed a broad cross-section of people, you know, diverse group, large sample size, and just to find out about how much they spent on their wedding and how long they had been married or were married. And the result they found was that there was a correlation between those two things. How long a marriage lasts and how much money was spent on the wedding. But it was an inverse correlation. You follow? So what they found is, generally speaking, the more money that was spent on the wedding, the shorter the marriage lasts. Now that's not an indictment of anybody's elaborate wedding in here. Please don't hear it that way. And, and they also point out in the study that they weren't saying there was any causation there necessarily, just a correlation. They were just observing the facts, the data. Which brings to mind, this is what's talked about in the podcast, it brings to mind some questions, right? Like why and all that kind of stuff. And I mean, it could be as simple as just the fact that if you spent a lot on your wedding, say even borrowed money or went into debt, which does happen um, to, to pay for an elaborate wedding, um, then if you go into a marriage with debt or a substantial amount of debt, I mean, debt is a stressor and a strain in a relationship. So it could be just as simple as that, you know. Um, or maybe it, it's a matter of misplaced priorities. <laughs> maybe it's overcompensating, I, you know. I mean, you speculate. Um, or, or maybe it's some a misunderstanding about what love is and what love means and how we experience love and express love, which is where our scripture for today plays such an important part to help us see and understand and think about what it means to love and to be loved. That last verse that we read, these three, faith, hope, and love, remain. And the greatest of them is love. By the way, when we started this series three weeks ago, uh, at 845, the 845 service, which you know we're doing in a little bit more modern style now, one of the um, young guys there, he's in elementary school, but he was obviously paying attention because we read the scripture, particularly that verse, and then I launched into my pontificating about faith, you know, as the first of those three. And then after it was over, he came up to me and he said, but it says the greatest one is love. Why are we talking about any of these other things? Why aren't we just talking about love? I was like, gee whiz, thanks. <laughs> I went to school, got a degree, got, you know, I spent a week writing. Because and... the greatest of these is love. And really that's what 
Paul is doing in that chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. I didn't read the first three verses, but I read the rest of the chapter to you. So if you want to go and read verses 1 through 3, you can say, I read a chapter of the Bible this week. I mean, because I, I read all the rest of it to you. But those first three verses, he, Paul points out things like, you know, if I say that I have the gift of tongues, speaking in tongues, but don't have love, then I'm just a clanging gong or symbol, like Jessica said. Or if I, if I have the gift of prophecy or knowledge and can understand things, and if, I have, if I'm willing to give to the poor, give everything that I have, even give up my life for others, but I don't have love, then I've got nothing. In a sense, it's empty, worthless. So what Paul sets up for the Corinthians and for us is that in the midst of all of this that we do and think about and work towards, and if it's done without love, we're missing the point. Paul sets love up as what is central, what is vital, what is critical to our lives, to our faith, to being who we were created to be. To living life the way we were created to live it. It all comes back to, it all begins and ends with love. And then Paul goes on to describe love. Patience. Kindness. Honesty. Trust. hope, and some things that love is not. Jealous, arrogant, irritable, rude, which by the way, I'm going to stop preaching for a minute and just meddle, Um, because I think that one is particularly challenging for us where we live and how we've been raised. If we live in the South, in the United States, we've been raised to be polite while simultaneously being mean as a snake. You know what I mean? I'm just meddling now. I'm not preaching. Like we look you right in the face with a smile and then go right around the corner, stab you in the back. Anybody? It's one thing to not be rude, right? We, we kind of got that covered with our politeness and gentility. Oh, but what's underneath it? You know, Paul goes to describing love. What love looks like. How we experience it. How we express it. He also says it's not keeping score, because that's a temptation too, right? With that list of things is make it a scorecard. How am I doing with all that? And, and it's not about keeping score. It's about something bigger, deeper than that. And in a sense, maybe Paul's just putting us in the right frame of mind, of attitude, of heart, to think about and understand love. And then he goes on to press a little bit further, and he says, you know those gifts that I talked about and that you've asked me about, Corinthians, gifts of knowledge and wisdom and understanding, Gifts of tongues, which we don't really experience much, the gift of speaking in tongues anymore. Of course, that doesn't stop us from talking. (laughs) 
Oh, we, maybe we have more to say these days than we ever have. Gifts of prophecy and discernment and being able to understand things and explain things and tell what's going to happen and predict what's coming. Paul said, you know, all that stuff that you think about and focus on and talk about and ask about, guess what? All that has an end. (laughs) That only goes so far. But what endures, what never fails, what will always be, is love. It was interesting, this came up in a conversation I was having with my doctoral cohort. So I, you know, just second semester into a doctoral program. So please, for your prayers, I thank you. Um, we, we have a Zoom chat every Monday morning. Are you familiar with Zoom? It's just a way to have a, you know, an online video conference conversation. So the 16 of us in this cohort, we have a Zoom chat every Monday morning with our mentor, our lead mentor. His name is Leonard Sweet. Lynn Sweet. He's, he's a well-known theologian, modern-day theologian, author. I think very highly of him. It's why I'm in the program. And um, our program, our doctoral program, is really centered around the concept of semiotics, which is a sort of a fancy word for reading the signs of the times and understanding what they mean, whether that's the day we live in or the, the scriptures. I, I know I've lost you. I apologize. But come back to me because we were talking about the Super Bowl. I got you. We were, what we were doing in our, our last um, Zoom chat this past Monday was our assignment was to look at the Super Bowl semiotically. What do, what do you see, not just in the game, but in the production, pre-production, the commercials, all that stuff? What do you see going on there? And some interesting things that we pointed out. Like, for instance, uh, there was a lot of AI, artificial intelligence or robotics sort of stuff that you saw coming out in the commercials or even in the production of the Super Bowl itself. And so we're thinking, about, okay, what does that mean for us, for our times and how we live our faith and what we think is coming? And uh, another thing that came up was we noticed there was a lot less of what I'll call toxic masculinity in the commercials. Uh, for instance, there was really no objectification of women in, in the Super Bowl commercials, which is certainly something that's been a part of our even recent past, but a lot less of that showing up in, in the Super Bowl and, uh, and so what does that mean for our culture? And what does that tell us about who we are and where we're going? But something else that he pointed out, um, Lynn Sweet pointed out to us, and he showed us a graphic. It was a map of the United States, and it, and it showed graphically who was rooting for the Rams and who was rooting for the Patriots, you know, about where you lived. And I don't know if you saw this, but uh, there were only a few pockets around the country, in New England being one of them, that people were rooting for the Patriots. The vast majority of the United States was rooting for the Rams. And we discussed the fact, were people rooting for the Rams or were they just rooting against the Patriots? And the fact is, probably people were just rooting against the Patriots. And so he, he said, uh, Dr. Sweet asked the question, why? Why are we rooting against the Patriots? I mean, people can deflate gate or other things, you know, that we, and, and they've won so much, we want somebody else to win, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he observed, this is probably the greatest, if not one of, you know, one of the greatest or the greatest football coach, professional football coach ever in Bill Belichick, just according to success. And same for their quarterback, Tom Brady. One of, if not the best quarterback ever. And, and we live in the time when they are coaching and playing and we're watching them and we're experiencing that. And what do we do? We hate them. <laughs> we love to hate them. And why is that? 
And it, it gave rise to a bigger conversation among us that, that that is sort of our way. Sometimes we, we love to hate. In fact, unfortunately, it's, it's how we engage and interact with new people, new ideas, new experiences. A lot of times we do it critically. What's wrong with it? What did I not like about it? What did I not like about them? Where did they miss? What, what could have been better? We've, we've developed this sort of way about us culturally that we love to hate. As opposed to, or rather than, being willing to receive the other. Receive the different perspective or experience as a gift from God. To be aware of and appreciative of what there is in that experience or in that perspective or in that person that can be a blessing for us. Rather, our default is to be critical. And, and we talked about why that is. Maybe in America we love the underdog and all that kind of stuff. But Dr. Sweet said, he, he pointed back to sort of the Enlightenment era that we've all been trained and raised in this sort of critical thinking mode. Uh, that, that it's always to press and to question and to critique rather than just to appreciate and receive the beauty, the wonder, the mystery, the gift of the other. And see, that's where I think Paul is getting into love with us, saying that, hey, all this other stuff, this knowledge and wisdom and prophecy and tongues and, and all this stuff, all that only goes so far. And then he gets into that, when, when I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. Right now, we see only in a mirror, some say a mirror dimly, but then we will see face-to-face or in person. When the, when the perfect comes, is kind of what Paul says, when as perfection works on us, as we are perfected in love by the Spirit of God, we mature. We see things differently. We see things the way God sees them. But that's not always easy. In fact, it's rather difficult. It can be hard to live a life and to relate to others and to the world and to our experiences with patience and kindness and honesty and trusting with hope and not be irritable or rude or judgmental or critical, jealous, self-serving. I mean, if we be honest, that, that can be hard. Which, something else that came up in our um, Zoom chat. One of my colleagues in my cohort, his name's Brian. He's a, his calling is to be an interim pastor, an interim minister. He serves in the PCUSA Church, the Presbyterian Church of the United States of America, out in the Pacific Northwest. And he's an interim pastor, so he goes into a congregation when their pastor has left and he serves as their pastor until they find their next one, which just doesn't sound like my cup of tea at all. But it's his calling, and, and he, he's blessed to do it. But he was sharing in our chat about his cousin who, um, who has depression, 
and has really struggled to find treatment that works for her. Tried medicine, tried therapy and all this kind of stuff, and, and nothing has worked. And then her therapist recommended a relatively new treatment, uh, which is, it's called TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. TMS, transcranial magnetic stimulation. I had to work so hard to remember those three words together. But, but the idea is that they put uh, magnets, electromagnetic magnets next to your skull near the places, the parts of the brain that control mood and temperament. Because what they've discovered is with depression, what happens is there are parts of your brain there that shut down. Literally, the nerves close off. And so what they're able to do with these magnets is with electromagnetic waves, stimulate those parts of the brain and those nerve cells and force them back open. And Brian was sharing that his cousin has been receiving this treatment and it was very helpful for her. And um, it's non-invasive, you know, it's not... So there's so many positives to this treatment, TMS. But he said the doctor, when he met with... uh, when he met with her to talk about this treatment, he told her, now there is one side effect that you will experience. You're going to have headaches. Like pretty significant headaches. I don't know anybody that likes a headache. But he said that's just part of what happens because as those magnetic waves force those nerve cells back to life and force those nerves and those parts of the brain open to reopen, it hurts. And so you're going to have headaches. But it'll be worth it because it will help. And in fact, it has. And that's what she was telling Brian. And he was sharing with us is this treatment has helped her. But she did have the headaches. But the line that he said that the doctor told his cousin that stuck with me is the doctor said, you're going to have headaches, but not all headaches are bad. Because in fact, what's happening in that moment is your head is hurting because those parts of your brain are being brought back to life or being opened up again. And it hit me. That's love. That is how we experience and know and express love. Particularly the way it's described in 1 Corinthians 13. is like transcranial magnetic stimulation. It's the love of God in us and in our lives. That is forcing new places awake (laughs) in us. Or places that have closed down or shut off and bringing them back to life. Opening us up to new places, new people, new experiences, new understandings. To be able to be kind and patient and trusting and honest. And not be irritable and rude, self-serving, critical. But just like TMS, man, to love like that, sometimes that's going to give you a headache. <laughs> to love one another that way, sometimes it's painful. So much so that it might be easier just to not. But if we will allow, receive the love of God that will bring those places to life in us 
or open them back up in us. Then we will come to know more fully the love of God for us and life the way God intended us to live. That's something else that Jesus said about love, by the way. If you love the people that love you, way to go, big deal. That's my paraphrase. Way to go, big deal. Jesus said, love the people who don't love you. That's when you experience love. When you let the love of God do that kind of work in your life, then, like TMS, parts of your spirit, parts of your soul, parts of who you are and who God created you to be will come to life. It is my prayer for myself, for us here at Shambly First United Methodist Church, That we would be willing and open for the love of God to do that work in us. To bring alive new places. To make us open to new people, new perspectives, new experiences. And that together as we do that, we will be more and more the image of who God created us to be. As we found in Jesus Christ. In just a minute, we're going to sing our closing hymn. Um, Come, those who love the Lord. We're marching to Zion. But before we do, I want to ask if we could just have a word of prayer together quickly, and then we'll pray, and then we'll sing. But as we pray and sing, I'm inviting you to consider where it might be in your life, in your spirit, in your heart, in your mind. That God is bringing something alive, something awake in you. Love, the way we've seen it in 1 Corinthians. Even if it's painful. Even if it's causing you headaches. To be willing to be loved and to love in this way. Oh God, we're thankful for your love. We're thankful for the work your love does in us and among us that we could never do on our own. We're thankful that we've seen and experienced your love so fully in your son, Jesus. Oh God, open us up to all the possibilities of the fullness of your kingdom in love. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you, would you stand now as we sing our closing hymn, Marching to Zion.